chapter 5 of the Gospel of John is where we are today. This is doctrinally and theologically quite a profoundly important chapter where Jesus defends his relationship with the Father and uh, therefore explains to us the nature of God as Trinity. So that's kind of where we're going. The other thing to note about this uh, chapter is we're starting to see a shift in how uh, both in uh, Galilee and in Judea, how the people of Israel are responding to Jesus. So far, you know, we've only gone through four, uh, four chapters, but so far there's been a mode of acceptance of Jesus. Uh, I mean, for the most part, the opposition is fairly uh, mild and so on. Here, it begins to become very significant, the opposition to Jesus. And it is going to be led by the spiritual leadership of Israel. And that, of course, uh, is none other than the Pharisees. But that shift is an important one to note because chapters 5, 6, and 7 really zero, zero in on the growing opposition to Jesus. And therefore, you could argue the growing rejection of Jesus. And that is really one of the major themes, really indeed of all four Gospels, but of the Gospels, because that rejection is what explains the crucifixion in, in human terms. And so that shift is an important one to note, because it ultimately is going to lead to the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. So let's, let's begin. Uh, verse 1 of chapter 5, the Gospel of John. After this... Now, when John says that, and he uses that throughout his gospel account, he is asking us to think sort of chronologically. In other words, after all that had happened with the uh, Samaritans, the woman at Samaria, etc., all that we studied the last week or two, now Jesus is uh, in, back in Jerusalem. There was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. John does not tell us what feast it is. Uh, is it Passover? Possibly, but some are suggesting it's not. It's another feast, the Feast of, of Booze, Feast of Dedication. We're not sure. So John chooses not to tell us what feast it is. What is more important is that he's in Jerusalem. Now, verse 2, in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic, it's called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. Let me stop there for just a moment. In your, um, in your packet, I'm not sure I'm going to ask you to turn to this now because we're going to be looking at this a lot in the future, but there is a little map of Jerusalem. The Sheep Gate is on the northeastern corner of Temple Mount. The Sheep Gate is the gate, obviously by the name, the gate through which they would bring the sheep that would be offered in Passover. And there is, as soon, I've, I've been there quite a few times in my life, and as you enter that gate, you will immediately see the ruins of the pools of Bethesda. And the ruins of those five roof colonnades, they're there. You can see the ruins of those. So we know exactly where this is. And that pool, was a pool that was, I should really say this, the water from that pool was used for the cleaning and cleansing of the animals to be sacrificed. So we're on the northeast corner of Temple Mount. And so what's, what's really critical here is this pool was a place where there was a lot of superstitious beliefs, a lot of superstitious practices, and people who wanted to be healed would go to the pools of Bethesda. It was a very large, it was like you and I would compare it today to like two big swimming pools that are separated by a colonnade, like a walkway with columns. And that, that's essentially what it is. It's massive. It was a massive pool. And the reason John explains that to us is because of verse three. In these lay a multitude of invalids. In these, in what? As I said, it's like two big swimming pools. That's the best analogy I can make for our culture, like the big swimming pools that are uh, in, on Russ's property where he lives. 
<clears throat> but anyway, in, in the middle is this walkway with these colonnades, these big columns. And what, what John is telling us is a lot of people who want to be healed are lying there, blind, lame, paralyzed. Verse 5, one man was there who had been, in, been an invalid for 38 years. Now, John has told us a multitude of invalids lay there, but there's one who has been an invalid for 38 years. That's the one Jesus chooses to heal. That's important, at least for me it's important, that what is going on here is Jesus is not going to heal everybody that's lying along those colonnades. He chooses one man, and it's this man who's been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there for a long time, he said, do you want to be healed? Now, these people, and this man is no exception, are there because they believed that angels stirred up the water, and if they would be able to dip in that water, they'd be healed. So when Jesus asks the question, do you want to be healed? That's like, duh, of course, that's why I'm here. But Jesus is asking that question to be certain that this man is going to have the faith that is necessary for Jesus to do the miracle. The sick man answered him in verse 7, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. So Jesus discerns that this man is willing to be healed, Jesus discerns that he's been waiting based on these rather silly superstitions. But the point is, Jesus chooses this man to do a messianic miracle. And Jesus chooses this man to do a messianic miracle intentionally, willfully, on the Sabbath. Jesus could have chosen any day of the week to do this miracle but he chooses to do it on the Sabbath. Now, please note the Lord's command again at the end of verse 8. Get up, take up your bed, which would have been nothing more than like a rolled-up blanket, and walk. So when Jesus says, get up, take up your bed, and walk, from the perspective and the position of the narrow-minded, legalistic Pharisees, that man is working on the Sabbath. Because he gets up and puts, rolls up his bed and puts it on his shoulder and begins to walk. For these legalistic leaders, he is working. Now that's extraordinary, but keep that in mind. And at once the man was healed, he took up his bed and walked. Now, John tells us, as I already mentioned, now that day was the Sabbath. And I, I'm going to emphasize this again so you don't miss this. Jesus is intentionally choosing to do this miracle on the Sabbath. He did not have to do it on the Sabbath. It wasn't required for him to do it on the Sabbath. But he's doing it on the Sabbath to test, to confront and to expose the legalistic righteousness of the Pharisees, who have no compassion, have no mercy, and know no grace. Verse 10, so the Jews, now again, I remind you, when John in his writings uses the phrase the Jews, he means the leadership. He's not making a general statement, an anti-Semitic statement, He's talking about the leaders, primarily the Pharisees. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. Now, I maybe you guys are really familiar with this story. Maybe you're really familiar with this, this important narrative. But that is absolutely ridiculous. That is absolutely evidencing these men who are the spiritual leaders of Israel 
They have absolutely no compassion, absolutely no mercy, absolutely no understanding of grace. This man has been an invalid for 38 years. Jesus Christ just healed him, and Jesus Christ just gave him a command to walk and take up his bed. And these guys are focused on an absurd legalistic interpretation of the law. There is nothing in, this, in the Old Testament. You will struggle and find none. You will struggle in vain. You will spend countless hours going through Exodus and Numbers and Leviticus and Deuteronomy trying to find a prohibition. You're not going to find one. There's nothing. But this man is violating their traditions, their interpretation. And it is, it is laying bare the lack of compassion of these legalistic, outward righteous guys who don't give a hoot about the condition of a man who has been an invalid for 38 years. And so you have the very implied contrast between Jesus and the spiritual leaders. But he answered them in verse 11, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said this to you? Take up your bed and walk. Verse 13, now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. So Jesus is taking that step from doing a messianic miracle to calling for moral reformation as a faith response to Jesus. And so this man has now, and this is the point, this man has now experienced the supernatural miracle. He can walk. He's now experiencing the supernatural cleansing from sin. Verse 15, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And so again, what John is doing here, and this is very clear, Jesus intentionally does these miracles, and you're going to see throughout the rest of the Gospel of John, Jesus is going to do a number of miracles intentionally on the Sabbath. And John is telling us, because he is he is Jesus, he is challenging their traditions, their narrow-minded legalistic, performance-based understanding of righteousness. He is doing something that we don't want him to do because he's violating our traditions. The Pharisees will float 612 specific traditions that are their interpretations of the law. Later, some of those would be codified into what is called the Mishnah. Now, I'm getting beyond what is of interest, I'm sure, to most of you. But what, it, what is happening here is the Lord Jesus Christ is challenging the legalistic righteousness of the Pharisees. He's challenging something that is keeping people out of heaven, that is keeping people from having an intimate personal relationship with the living God, even based on the Old Testament and Old Covenant. Because nowhere in the Bible, I should say in the Old Testament, nowhere in the Old Testament are you going to find a command that prohibits a man who has been healed picking a walk, or picking up his bed and walking. You will not find that, but for the Pharisees, they regarded this as a personal challenge from this man, Jesus. Now, before we get to verse 17, let me stop and see if you're with me. I mean, this isn't really difficult, 
but I tried to make sure you had a little bit of a deeper understanding of the context of this and what is really going on here in this confrontation between the Lord Jesus and the Pharisees. Are you with me on that? Any questions? All right, wonderful. Now we move to the doctrinal importance of chapter 5. Look at verse 17. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. Now, let's think about that for just a minute, because what the Pharisees are arguing is this man who's now walking, picking up his bed and walking, is working. And Jesus says, all right, I want you to understand something. And your rabbis teach this, that God continues to work on the Sabbath. God, who is the creator and the sustainer of the universe, continues his work of sustaining, of upholding the universe, <laughs> yet not breaking the Sabbath. So I hope you're with me. In other words, what Jesus is saying, my father's working until now, that would not be controversial for them to hear, and I am working that would be controversial for them to hear, because what is Jesus Christ claiming? <clears throat> to be equal with the Father. As, I, as the Father works, I work. So Jesus now is moving. This is, this is absolutely astounding. Jesus is now moving from a discussion about the nature of the Sabbath to a discussion about his relationship with the Father. And by that statement in verse 17, the Lord Jesus Christ is claiming equality with the Father. From their vantage point, that's blasphemy. From Jesus' standpoint, he is explaining, I should say he is about to explain, the nature of God as Trinity, the relationship between the members of the Godhead. In this case, he's going to explain the relationship between the Father and the Son. Later on in the Gospel of John, he's going to bring in the discussion about the Holy Spirit. So, now, before we move into verse 18, do you understand, are you with me, on the significance of what Jesus means when he says... My father's working until now, and I am working. You with me on that? That is a bold, audacious claim. <laughs> this I would like have it. shocked these guys for him to say that. I, I have right. a question. Yes, please. Uh, it's, it's, as I'm staring at this, I'm looking and seeing, um, you know, it's like, and, well, I'm doing what my father is doing, but I, I, why and instead of so? Well, I, to, to establish equality, that coordinating conjunction is so much more important than an inferential particle like so or therefore. Oh. As the so father that's, so that's working, where you're building the... the absolutely, that, that's, ex that's exactly what he's doing. He is, by using the coordinating conjunction in Greek, it's chi, but in English it's and. By using a coordinating conjunction... He is establishing the equality of the two. If, if he would use an inferential particle like so or therefore, that's not as clear. But I mean, it's really, it's a powerful, it's a powerful claim that Christ is making here. Mm -hmm. Did these guys get it? Look at verse 18. This is why the Jews were seeking to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. They got it. They understood what he was claiming. <laughs> and, they, and, and John says it's for that reason that they're seeking to kill him. So now Jesus begins to respond 
to their understanding, making himself equal to God. Yes, that's exactly what I'm claiming. Now, what I want you to note with me is there are four major aspects of this equality between Jesus and the Father, or let's make it clearer, between the Father and the Son. And so, and I'm going to read this, and then we're going to go back, and we're going to go through each one of these key characteristics, key aspects of the relationship of the Father and the Son. But first of all, just let me read, beginning with verse 19 through verse 23. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, and remember in Greek that's amen, amen, I say to you, the Son can do nothing on his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Father does not, does not honor the Son, excuse me, does not honor the Father who sent him. Now, let me stop before we look at verse 24. All right, now, as Jesus is responding to the claim of the Pharisees, you are making yourself equal to God, and you are calling God your Father. Jesus does not dispute that. What Jesus does is defends it. You are right. That is exactly what I'm claiming. And what he's going to do is he's going to explain the nature of that relationship. He is going to explain the relationship between the Father and the Son. He is explaining, now listen very carefully to this, he's explaining the relationship between the three members of the Godhead. That relationship here is between Father and Son. As I said earlier, the Holy Spirit is going to be brought into it later in the book of John. Now, let's, let's refresh our memories. We've done this a number of times in this class, but the definition of the Trinity that I use is that God is one essence of three persons who differ relationally and functionally. God is one essence of three persons, and the Bible defines those three persons as Father, Son, and Spirit. So they differ relationally, and they differ functionally. They have a different responsibility, a different job to do, if you will. And so what, what Jesus is doing here is he's explaining this relationship, and he makes four key statements, four key characteristics, four key defining aspects of this relationship. Now, I tried to say the same thing three different ways. All right, first of all, verse 19, this relationship between the Father and the Son is an interdependent relationship. The Son can do nothing on his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, that the Son does. Okay, now, what is Jesus saying? I never act independently of the Father. The Father never acts independently of me. We act together. I do nothing on my own accord. Whatever the Father does, I do likewise. There's a mutual interdependence between the members of the Trinity, the members of the Godhead. The Father never acts independently of the Son. The Son never acts independently of the Father. Now, John does not cover this, but I'll refresh your memory. 
if you go to Luke 4 or Matthew 4, the temptation of Jesus by Satan. What is Satan trying to get Jesus to do in all three temptations? To act independently of the Father. That's exactly what he's doing. The text says that the, the Holy Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights, and the de devil says, all these stones, take one of those and turn it into bread and eat. What does Jesus say? Man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Jesus is tempted by Satan in number two, at the pinnacle of Temple Mount. Jump off this pinnacle. And he quotes from Psalm 90, the Father will protect you. You are trying to get me to act independently of the Father. The Father doesn't want me to do this miracle. I'm not going to do it. And thirdly, he takes him up to Mount Hermon and somehow supernaturally shows him all the kingdoms of the world, because Satan is the governor of this kingdom, the god of this age, the prince of power of the air, they're all the names Jesus gives to him. Uh, bow down to me, and I'll give you all this. That's what the Heavenly Father promised Jesus. He promised his son an inheritance to rule over planet Earth. Satan is promising to give it to him, but he doesn't have to go to the cross. In all three temptations, Satan is trying to get Jesus to act independent of the Father. Jesus just explained to us in verse 19, that's never going to happen. I do not act independent of the Father. What the Father does, I do. There's a mutual interdependence between Father and Son. Secondly, there's love between the Father and the Son. For the Father loves, this is verse 20, the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these he will show him so that you will mar marvel. Now, though that greater works involves the raising of the dead. The resurrection of Jesus is this mega, the Greek word is mega, this greater work that will marvel the human race. So the Father loves the Son, and that love for the Son extends to even this fantastic, marvelous work of resurrection that will cause the world to marvel. Which you see, that mutual interdependence is also characterized by mutual love. Later on, Jesus is going to talk about he loves the Father and the Father loves him. Go on a bunny trail with me for just a moment. Before God created anything, you go to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Before God did anything, creating anything, was there love? Was there communion? Yes. There was love and communion between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. That is why in 1 John, not the Gospel of John, but the letter of 1 John, chapter 4, two times, John says, God is love. It's a predicate nominative. It is a defining attribute of who God is. Man, that makes no sense. That makes no sense unless God is Trinity. What's, what's the reference again? 1 John, chapter 4, the epistle of John, 1 John, chapter 4. I, I don't remember the exact verses. It's near the beginning of the chapter. It's near the end of the chapter. God is love. And that, that makes no sense unless God is Trinity. That is one of the real challenges of a Muslim, because the Quran never says that. The Quran does not claim God, that Allah is love. It doesn't exist, because the problem is, for Islam, is that Allah, the Arabic name for God, Allah is absolutely one. To, to, to a Muslim, to claim God as Trinity is blasphemy. But you see, it is at the heart of biblical Christianity that God is Trinity. And Jesus is explaining to us here, in responding to the Pharisees, what's that relationship between the members of the Godhead? What does that look like? And that's what he's explaining to us. Number three is in verse 21. The authority to give life. 
For the Father, as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. There's absolute equality. Both Father and Son have authority over life, giving life, raising the dead, giving resurrected life. Jesus says to Martha, we're going to read about that later in the Gospel of John, I am the resurrection and the life. And so it's just absolutely mind-boggling what Jesus is doing here. He's explaining the depths of this relationship of Father and Son. We both have authority over life. And then fourthly, verse 22, the authority to judge. The Father judges no one, but has given judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son as they honor the Father. So Jesus has the authority to judge, dispensed by the Father, so that each will be honored. The Father and the Son will be mutually honored, because whoever does not honor the Son, the end of verse 23, does not honor the Father who sent him. So this this authority to judge leads to the honor that both Father and Son receive. So what the Lord Jesus has just done is given us a quite marvelous, succinct description of the relationship between the members of the Godhead. In this case, he's just focusing on the Father and Son, because that's the subject. Later, he'll bring the Spirit into this, but let me review this one more time. Verse 19, there's mutual interdependence. They never act independent of one another. Number two, there's mutual love. Number three, there's mutual authority to give life. Number four, the authority to judge. And number five, mutual honor. You cannot honor the Father and dishonor the Son. You honor the Father, you honor the Son. That's why Jesus then concludes in verse 24. Truly, truly, remember that in Greek, that's amen, amen, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. And that's the positional truth, the resurrected life that that God is calling us to. So Jesus has just, I mean, he has just wowed these men. And did they get it? Did they understand it? Um, they understood his claims, but their charge is he's committing blasphemy. And they're going to organize all of their efforts to kill him, as you already know. All right. Now, your thought paper for next week is take 19 through 24 and explain the relationship between the members of the Godhead. You better come up with five. I got a question. Yeah, on, on verse nineteen. Yeah, I, I see the uh, I see the dependence from in nineteen from son depending on the father. But where is the mutual where the father depends on the son? Well, I mean that's an inference. In, in other words, Jesus says I can do nothing on my own accord. Mm-hmm. But what the Father says and what the Father does, the Son does likewise. The, the inference is that that is exactly the same with the Father and Son. Son and Father, Father and Son. Because, I mean, look again at the end of verse 19. Mm-hmm. Whatever the Father does, the Son does. So d- Jesus is not acting independent of the Father. Right. And the inference there is also, therefore, the Father doesn't act independent of the Son. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't see that. Is there? Well, no, can it's you just, point me to other references. Well, yeah, well, it's gonna, you're gonna see more of it here in in in, in the rest of this chapter, okay. and in other parts in John 15, in John 16, and so on. But Russ, it's an inference that you can yeah. reasonably draw. Mm-hmm. Whatever the Father does, the Son does. And, and it's establishing that interdependent relationship. So if the Son never acts independent of the Father, will the Father act independent of the Son? No, that doesn't logically follow. 
the logical corollary, if the, whatever the father does, the son does, the son never acts independent of the father, then the father doesn't act independent of the son either. That's the nature of their relationship. Why? Because of what follows. There's mutual love. Each has authority to give life. Each has authority to judge. And the father gives that authority to the son. And each deserve mutual equal honor. You can't honor one without honoring the other. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the logical, the logical corollary of this is that as the son doesn't act independent of the father, the father doesn't act independent of the son. Thank I mean, you. That'll, the be, my, does, that'll the be my study. Go, the father doesn't go off and do something on his own. Mm-hmm. That in everything Jesus is saying, that's not that doesn't logically follow. So we can therefore argue the mutual interdependence. They act together, and again, later on, you're going to see the the, the Holy Spirit. By later on, I mean later on in the gospel here. Uh, you're going to see the Holy Spirit brought into this in the same way. Thanks. It's a marvelous, succinct definition, maybe rephrase that, description of the relationship between the members of the Godhead. All right. Any other questions? This is good stuff. I love this. All right. If there are more questions, let's continue. And that's in verse 25. Truly, truly, and remember that's amen, amen, I say to you, an hour is coming. Now that little phrase, an hour is coming, is used throughout the Gospels, and it refers always to the future, to the end, to the completion of the redemptive program of God. But Jesus does something here. You go back to Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, you see that. But look what Jesus does. An hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. So Jesus is taking a phrase out of the Old Testament prophets and saying, it's here. Another way of saying this is the Messianic age has dawned. The new covenant era has begun. And Jesus says it's quite extraordinary. When the dead will hear the voice of God, and those who hear will live. Now, death means separation. There's spiritual death, separation from God. There's physical death, the separation of the body and the soul. When Jesus says, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live, he's talking about the spiritually dead, who will hear the message of the kingdom, the message of the gospel. They'll respond, and they will receive spiritual life, which will lead to resurrection life. So Jesus is, this is just, this is so astonishing. I'm telling you, the hour that the prophets talked about and prophesied and described and detailed is here. The solution to the human condition is here. The spiritually dead, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 says, we were dead in our sins and our transgressions. But God made us alive through Christ. And that's spiritual death followed by resurrection life. But here Jesus is saying, spiritually dead people will hear the message and respond. For as the Father has life in himself, God is self-sufficient, self-existent. The Father doesn't, nobody breathed life into the Father. The Father has life in himself. The Father is the source of all life. He's a self-existent, self-sufficient being in the universe. He has granted the Son also to have life in himself. So that life that the Father has, the Son has, Again, equality, father and son, 
verse 27, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he's the son of man. Now, verse 27 is paraphrasing Daniel 7, 13. One like the son of man comes up to the ancient of days and receives power, authority, dominion. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. I am the Son of Man of Daniel 7.13, and the Father has given me the authority, the exousia, to execute judgment. Verse 28, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear my voice, and there now you're moving from spiritual life to resurrection life, and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. What Jesus has just described in verse 29 is the end of Revelation chapter 20, the great white throne judgment. And so, I mean, this is just absolutely, this is absolutely mind-boggling. And these Pharisees, hearing what Jesus is saying, would have just, their heads would be spinning, because the Lord is taking all of these themes out of the Old Testament prophets and personally applying to himself as he explains further his relationship to the Father. But let's review this again. Verse 25, what the prophets had said, the hour is coming. It's here. When the solution to separation from God because of sin is here, the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And as the Father is self-sufficient, self-existent life, so the Son has self-existent, self-sufficient life, and the Father has given him authority because he's the Son of Man. Daniel 7, 13. When like the Son of Man comes up to the Ancient of Days and receives authority, Power, judge, uh, power, dominion, authority over earth, etc. So yeah. that hour is coming when not only will the spiritual problem be solved, separation from God, but the resurrection life will be given to those who have evidenced their relationship based on faith, have done good, resurrection of life. And those who have rejected that, done evil, evidence that they've rejected the grace of God to resurrection for judgment. At the end of Revelation 20, said, God will resurrect all of those who have rejected him and his grace for judgment at the great white throne, and then will be condemned to the lake of fire for eternity. So Jesus is succinctly summarizing the rest of the plan. And I mean, it's just, uh, it's, it's, it really, I keep saying astounding and astonishing. and It really is. Because Jesus is claiming things here that the Jewish leadership, the Pharisees, the scholars who have mauled over and studied all the Old Testament texts, they knew that phrase, hour of coming. They knew that phrase, son of man. Jesus is saying, hey, 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 that's all about me. And I am the solution to the human condition, solving the, the, the spiritual death of humanity, separation from God, solving the, the, the physical death of mankind, the resurrection to life. But ultimately, every human being is going to have to give an account. And that authority has been given to me by the Father. All right. Any questions? Yes. <laughs> I have one on um, the um, 526. He says, so he has granted the son. What is granted means to bestow, right? Um, what's, what's the word granted mean there? Uh Imputed, it, granted. It, well, it the the authority that the father has over life, the father has granted that to the son as well. It doesn't have anything to do with creation. Mm -hmm. 
It has everything to do with the unique relationship of the father and son. The father, and, and it's again, our definition of Trinity, God is one essence of three persons who differ relationally, father, son, and spirit, and functionally. They each have different responsibilities. Uh Each have different jobs to do. And so it is the father who has this authority over judgment, has this authority over life, and he grants it to the son. In other words, it's the father giving this authority to the son, Why is it applied to himself first, then? The father says he has life in himself, the authority over life, and then he grants the authority, like in the previous verse, uh, in uh, 19. Well, it it takes you back to uh, Genesis 1, Uh when the father, and again, when you look at, when you read it, it's really interesting because you see all the members of the Trinity mixing together to do all this, mm-hmm. but it says God breathes life into Adam. So the, where does life come from? Mm-hmm. It comes from God. And God breathes life. Human beings do not have life because of some cosmic accident. Mm-hmm. They have life because God's given them life. Right. And so what 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 is what is going on here in the language that Jesus is using is the father who ha- is self-existent and 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 self-sustaining and therefore he gives life to whom he wants to give life he creates the animals he creates plants but he creates human beings in his image he is also granted the son to have life in himself where he also dispenses the same life. He creates life, he breathes life in. Spiritual life, physical life. Spiritual life, solving the problem of sin. Uh, Physical life, because of his death, burial, and resurrection, resurrection life. I am the resurrection of the life, Jesus will say to Martha. Where does Jesus, uh, this is what's hard, But where does Jesus get the authority to say that? From the Heavenly Father. Father, That's not saying, that's not diminishing Jesus. He's just explaining that relationship. My authority comes from the Father, and I never do anything independent of the Father. And so because he's given me this job to do, I'm going to faithfully do it. The reason I'm asking is, like, if I replace life with, um, you know, a chili dog, right? I have the chili dog. You didn't have one. I gave it to you. That means the equivalence is challenged at that point in the way that I'm reading it. So I'm trying to figure out a way to defend that. Well, <laughs> because you're talking about the Godhead, it's it's hard um, to make amen. an analogy between two human beings uh-huh. equivalent as an analogy to members of the God who are co-eternal, co-essential, co-equal. Russ, I mean, that's that's because your analogy breaks down. (laughs) Because you're talking about two human human beings. Yeah. But um, when Jesus said earlier, I never act independent of the Father, Mm -hmm. Jesus is saying, even in the spiritual life, and resurrection life that I'm offering to the human race, they need to put their faith in me, to believe in me, verse 24. I want you to understand that this isn't something that I came up with. This isn't something that I uniquely am offering. I am following <coughs> I am following the will of my Father who wants me to do this. And I am doing it in obedience to him. And that's the language that Paul uses in Philippians 2. His obedience to the Father even extended to going to the cross. And this, I mean, you, that's why you can't make this relationship equivalent to two human beings in their relationship. Yeah, and no, I, I, I see the connection to 524. Thank you. All right, everybody with me? I know this is hard stuff. I told you to be prepared. <laughs> 
this is going to be a, a, a chapter that is a wonderful chapter. But we're trying, we're, we're seeing the infinite eternal trying to explain to, to temporal finite people this relationship. All right? Is everybody with me? <laughs> what time is it? Oh my goodness, it's almost 20 of All right. Can I move on a little bit? Are you all right if I do? Or right, look at verse 30. We're never going to get this done. But look at verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. Takes you back to verse 19. I can do nothing on my own. Equality of the Father and Son. Mutual interdependence, mutual love, mutual authority, mutual honor. I mean, all of the things we've been talking about. I don't act independently. I do not go off on my own and do something into I can do nothing on my own. So it's like, here's a summary statement of what I've just been talking about. And it's a summary statement of what I want to further explain. Jesus isn't done. He is going to continue to explain this. But the, the, the hinge is this phrase. It's really a clause. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus is sent by the Father to accomplish the program of redemption. The Father doesn't send the Spirit. The Father sends the Son. And Jesus says, I do not have an independent will. I do not have a will that is independent of the Father. My will is to do the will of him who sent me. Now, an illustration of this is a very familiar illustration. It's right before Jesus is executed. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's praying. He's agonizing. He's sweating drops of blood. And he says, Father, isn't there another way to do this? Can't this cup pass from me? Nevertheless, not my will but your will. So the God-man is agonizing over what he's about to face. But he keeps saying, not my will, but your will. And so Jesus is just saying, I do not have an independent will. My will is in line with the Father. What he wills, I willingly do. Now let me do a bunny trail real quickly. That is God's goal for you and me, that our will lines up with the will of God. That's what sanctification is all about, that process, because God takes an independent, defiant, rebellious human being who wants nothing to do with God, wants nothing to do with his righteousness, wants nothing to do with his justice, wants nothing to do with his love, etc., 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 saves them, justifies them, and begins to transform their will, their heart, and their mind, so that you and I can say, not my will, but your will, O God. That's the goal of sanctification. So Jesus is just saying, the relationship between Father and Son is, I do nothing on my own. What the Father wills, I will. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. There is another who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony he bears about me is true. All right, verse 31. What time is it? Verse 31. There's one witness to this relationship between the Father and the Son. I am that witness. But there's another who bears witness about me, 
And I know the testimony he bears about me is true. Who's that? It's the Father. Now, twice, twice in the ministry of Jesus, we have had the Father break through and audibly speak. First was at the baptism. When the Holy Spirit anoints Jesus and comes upon him, this is my beloved Son. Hear him. I am well pleased with him. Second is at the Mount of Transfiguration, when momentarily Peter, James, and John see the glory of Jesus restored. The glory that he set aside in the Incarnation is momentarily restored, and the Father breaks through again. This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. He is bearing witness to who the Son is. And that's what Jesus is saying. I bear witness by what I say and what I do. But there's another who bears witness. It's the Father. And what he says is true. Verse 33, you sent to John, and he is born witness to the truth. So you have a third witness, John the Baptist, who is the forerunner, who cuts the path for the Messiah. Verse 34, not that the testimony I receive is from man, but I say these things that you may be see it saved. And so Jesus is saying in verse 33 that the point of all this is not for me to be elevated. It's so that you can be saved. The witness of my works, my words, the witness of the Father, the witness of John the Baptist, three witnesses are what are required in Jewish law all bear witness to who I am. But it isn't just for me to be able, it's that you might be saved. That's why I'm here, John 3, 16. Verse 35. He was a burning and shining lamp, referring to John the Baptist. He's actually quoting from Psalm 132, verse 17 there. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And so you have John the Baptist bore witness. He was that burning and shining lamp of Psalm 132.17. You liked that for a while. You went out to the wilderness and saw him. But my testimony is even greater. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the Messianic miracles, Isaiah says, you'll know Messiah. He will give sight to the blind. He will give hearing to the deaf. He will raise the dead. He will heal the sick, etc., etc. Jesus is doing what the Father wants him to do. They bear witness that the Father sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you've never heard, his form you've never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You do not accept the testimony of the Father because you don't accept me, the one whom he has sent. So to reject Jesus is to reject the Father because of everything he's been saying from verse 19 on through verse 38. Now, unfortunately, I'm going to it's 1246 because there is an additional testimony to who Jesus is. Actually, there are several more additional testimonies that Jesus wants to put on the table proving who he is. But that goes on from 39 through 44 and then the rest of the chapter. So we have two more big pieces of evidence. So I think what I'm going to do is stop here. And then next week, I'm going to summarize again, verse 30 through 38. And we'll see the rest of the testimonies because Jesus is giving a proof now. He's giving the evidence of this claim that he has been laying on the table about the relationship between him and his father, between the father and son. I can do nothing on my own. He's now giving the proof for this. What proof do you have that what I'm saying is true? That's what he's doing, but we're not quite done with that. Oh, I feel like I've taught for four hours. Are you with me on all this? This is marvelous stuff, isn't it?
It's yeah. really great stuff. It, it really is. Thank you. Well, good, good. Well, listen, uh, I'm going to pray. And again, we'll pick up next week. I'll summarize 30 through 37, maybe 30 through 36, and dig in again at verse 37, and then conclude through the rest of the chapter. Let me pray. Lord, we have been in a chapter that is one of the most important chapters in the New Testament, really, explaining uh, the relationship between the Father and Son, laying out that unique relationship, the members of the Godhead. And Lord, this is really important for us. It's hard because it's the infinite and the eternal trying to explain to us who are temporal and finite. It is hard for us. It stretches us. But we have the testimony of Scripture. We have the testimony of, of your salvation that we've experienced. We are experiencing your sanctifying grace, and we're beginning to understand. That's part of the wonders of salvation. We begin to more and more grasp and understand the eternal things of God. More and more we begin to understand the uniqueness of God as Trinity the uniqueness of the relationship of Father, Son, and Spirit, and those wonderful blessings that come from the indwelling Holy Spirit, from the saving work of Jesus, and from the care of the Father. I love that statement by J.I. Packer in his book, My Own God. One of the great privileges of the believer is to call God Father. There's no other worldview, no other religion that gives that wonderful blessing to call God Father, our Heavenly Father. We are your children. Thank you for the wonderful plan of salvation. Thank you, Jesus, for being willing to go and die that horrible death to conquer sin, death, and Satan. And Holy Spirit, to give us the resurrection life that comes from being born again. And to have you indwell us as the new temple of the living God we see the wondrous works of you, God, as Trinity. We praise you and worship you and thank you. Be with these men. Thank you for them. Thank you for each one of them. You know their unique needs. Any special requests for special needs, Lord, meet them. You know them. Meet them according to your perfect will. Bless them to be the men of God and men of faith you want them to be so that they can represent you well in Christ's name. Amen. See you next week, man. Thank you.